Open your Bible to the revelation of Jesus Christ, last book of the Bible, in the chapter 1. Chapter 1 of the Revelation, we're going to just, just a few verses there this morning to get into the book. The topic, the Apostle John shares the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him as a literal prophecy of mankind's future. The title of our message, Are We Near Yet? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. We uh, require your presence here. We invite you to be in this place. You, you said you wanted to be and that you would be among the church. And we, Lord, just extend our personal invitation for you to manifest yourself in this place. If you're not here, if the Holy Spirit isn't here to teach us, Lord, then uh, we might just be spinning our wheels, wasting our time. But we don't want to do that, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to see you. We're going to look at a book here that talks about revealing you, unveiling you. And that's our heart's desire. If all of us had one New Year's hope, Lord, it would be that we would see you as you've revealed yourself on the pages of Scripture and including this wonderful book, and that we would know your compassion and your grace, and that we would reach out to others before the wrath of God is coming on this world. And so, Lord, be with us. Take us verse by verse, word by word even. Um, help us to understand in simplicity, Lord, these wonderful truths. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said... Amen. I found this travel advice on a parenting website. You parents might want to take note. When my husband and I buckle in our eight-year-old daughter for a long drive, we make sure she's got lots of movies loaded up on the iPhone or iPad, a nice set of headphones, books, stuffed animals, a pillow and blanket, a notebook and colored pencils, some snacks and water. Another activity to add to the roster is playing the app Toka Life City. Created by using suggestions from kids around the world, players have three million ways to personalize 29 characters and direct them in a digital doll, dollhouse, or really a doll town. Navigating through rooms, customizing hairstyles, selecting their wardrobe, going grocery shopping, and visiting the pet store. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Not in my day. I twice told you the story of my oldest brother at the strong behest of my irritated father throwing out the window of our 57 Plymouth, my jack-in-the-box during our trip from Connecticut to California. I had that one toy to play with for 2,793 miles while traveling unbuckled in the back of a station wagon surrounded by our family's luggage. That, my friends, is old-school boy-named-sue parenting that will prepare you for life. Forget all this mamby-pamby stuff. The article I read was titled, How to Avoid Hearing, Are We There Yet? More and more people are asking, are we near yet, regarding the end times? Scott McConnell, director of Lifeway Research, writes, the current global pandemic will create interest among churchgoers and non-religious people about what the Bible says about plagues, disasters, and the end times. The urgency is less about stockpiling toilet paper and more about helping people be ready for Christ's return. Are we near yet? Well, check out verse 3. It says, the time is near. 
We have answers people need and are asking for, and many of them will be found here in this book. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you are the servant to whom Jesus is unveiled. And number two, you are the servant by whom Jesus is unveiled. Let's take a look at his unveiling in verse one. Tesla revealed its cyber truck in November 2019. Anybody watch that reveal, uh, unveiling? Some of you did, yeah. It was behind a curtain that they raised, surrounded by smoke. They drove it out on stage with fanfare and a laser light show. All was going great until Elon Musk demonstrated the unbreakable glass by having a baseball tossed at it. It broke. They did it again, which is, by the way, if you failed once, just let it go. It broke again. No matter, they previously hit the body of the truck with a sledgehammer doing no damage, and that you can shoot it with nine millimeter rounds and it doesn't do anything. It is now considered one of the great unveiling fails of all time. The second coming of Jesus is considered by most non-believers a great unveiling fail. They say, where is the promise of his coming? Those who scoff, we say it's near. And this book gives details about that unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so let's get into it in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Revelation is the word of apocalypsis. The taking away or the removing of a covering is what it means. It's really too bad that this word has come to be synonymous with chaos or catastrophe. The apocalypse isn't the end of the world, but rather the restoration of the world. And so we think about apocalyptic movies and, and you know, uh, there's nuclear blasts and one guy survives or everybody's a mutant ninja turtle or, you know, something like that. And so this is our idea, even in the church sometimes, of an apocalypse, some life-ending, world-ending event. But that's not the original use of the word, and it's certainly not the use of the word here. In his first coming, Jesus was veiled. We sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. The Apostle Paul put it like this, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man, and he was here on earth in a human body, his glory veiled. His glory was veiled so that he could accomplish the work of substituting himself for our sins, so that he could, as a man, die on the cross and be raised from the dead the third day as the first fruits of all those who would believe in him and likewise have eternal life. The apocalypse pulls the cover off, revealing Jesus as he is today, as he will be at his second coming, and as he will be in eternity. In the Lord of the Rings universe, the one true king, Aragorn, has many names and titles. He is Strider, Elisar, Isildur's heir, Thorangil, Estil. He's a ranger, and he's one of the Dunedain. We come to know him more completely through each of these names or titles. Tolkien reveals a little bit more about his history and his background and his future. Jesus will be made known more by the names and titles given him in this book. Part of his unveiling are these names. I'm going to go chapter by chapter. I think I've got all of them, but probably not. Chapter by chapter through Revelation, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
the ruler of the kings of the earth, the almighty one, the alpha and the omega, and that's just in chapter one. Then we move on to the son of man, the beginning and the end, the son of God, the one who is holy and true, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to King David's throne, the word of God, the king of kings, Lord of lords, the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Meditation on all of those names will bring you to a greater understanding of, of Jesus' mission and his ministry and his character. He's called the Lamb of God no less than 28 times in the Revelation, most certainly the favorite name the Apostle John gives him. Warren Wiersbe says of Jesus' unveiling in Revelation 4 and 5, he's seen in heaven as the glorified Lamb of God reigning on the throne. In Revelation 6 through 18, Christ is the judge of all the earth. In Revelation 19, he returns to the earth as the conquering king of kings. And the book closes in chapter 22 with the heavenly bridegroom ushering his bride, the church, into the glorious heavenly city. It says here, these things which must shortly take place. This is often misunderstood to mean that all the prophecies of the book were to be fulfilled soon after they were given, as in, I'll be with you shortly. Have you ever said that to somebody? I'll be with you shortly. Sometimes you don't mean it. They don't mean it ever at a doctor's office. It's code. It's, 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 it's code for I haven't forgotten you. But, you know, it doesn't sit right if they come out and say, Mr. Pensiero, I haven't forgotten you. And you think, is there a tendency to forget people? Is that something that happens? So they say that they'll be with you shortly. But that's not what's being communicated here. What if I told you the word shortly is entakai and that our English word tachometer comes from it? When you floor your accelerator pedal, teenagers don't do that, uh, the tachometer redlines. In the context of the revelation, it means that once the events described begin, it will be pedal to the metal. The minute this thing begins in earnest, it's going to flow forward for seven years with no breaks, no chance for uh, any parentheses or stopping the uh, action. It's just going to go. Now, he talks about his servants, and that's you and I. I can see the Lord choosing to give his beloved disciple John the revelation, but he says through John, he gives it to me and to you. Nevertheless, he has given it to us through John on these pages. Uh, and that's just a reminder that we're to do something about it and to do something with it. It is a revealing. It is a, a picture of Jesus, many portraits of Jesus that the world needs to see, uh, especially the non-believer who only sees Jesus uh, not even dying on the cross, but still on the cross. Uh, whether, you know, I know the Roman Catholic Church favors that, but I think a lot of people just think of Jesus on the cross. And we have here, he says, now this is the revelation of what I'm doing now and what I'm going to do and who I'll be for eternity. And I think people need to understand that Jesus is coming back uh, and it's not a failed unveiling. It's gonna be the greatest unveiling of all time and he's unveiled for us on these pages. It's also a good reminder that we would really see Jesus in these odd times we are experiencing, whether it's COVID-19 and its repercussions or just the, what we might call the normal sufferings of life. Some people were hit uh, by COVID-19 in different ways. Others have other diseases that they discovered this year. Others have had deaths in their family and other problems. Uh, it, it's, it's always out there. Uh, who, who are we looking to for hope and for strength and for truth and for clarity? 
Of course, Jesus, but not just to him, but at him, unveiled to us in his power and beauty, poised to return. You are the servant by whom Jesus is unveiled. It's been a White House tradition for decades. A first-term president hosts a ceremony in the East Room for the unveiling of the official portrait of his immediate predecessor that will hang in the halls of the White House for posterity. As of today, there's no date for this having been set for the uh, Trump administration to entertain the Obama portrait. And odds are it ain't going to happen. But anyway, no commentary. It's just, you know, in some sense, it's a tradition that started with Jimmy Carter uh, and it's gone uninterrupted until this year. So you're living through history. We're going to be privileged to see many portraits of our Savior in this wonderful book. We'll want to show them to others who have an inaccurate or incomplete portrait of the Lord. And so verse 1 continues and says, He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. John is the person who received the revelation and penned the scroll. He's the Apostle John, the author of the gospel bearing his name and three letters in the New Testament. He identifies himself four times in the revelation. And he also left us a kind of secret signature. Remember I told you that this book calls Jesus the Lamb of God about 28 times? John is the only writer of the New Testament who uses that name for Jesus. He does it here in the Revelation and he does it in his Gospel. And so if there was a chance that people were wondering if John really did write this Gospel, he said, yeah, I did. And you can prove it in many different ways. He identifies himself as a servant. He used the word for a voluntary bond slave, someone who chose slavery out of love for his master. You and I want to be bond servants. We want to voluntarily serve the Lord. You know, the Lord sets us free, uh, and it's, of course, a freedom to serve him, but he doesn't force anyone to serve him. No one makes service to the Lord mandatory. Churches try and do that all the time. Uh, you know, I mean, because they, you know, churches have needs. We have Sunday school, cafe, all these different things. And you think, how can we motivate people uh, into serving the Lord? And so they have a lot of uh, kind of motivations that they use, mostly shaming you, uh, you know, and stuff. This morning I was joking because uh, part of our cafe staff hadn't shown up. And I told Gino, I said, well, I'm going to have to get up and say I had this Bible study prepared, but instead I have to work in the cafe. And, you know, and stuff. So, you know, churches do. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, when you woke up this morning, he didn't try to shame you into coming to church or not coming to church or shame you into serving him. It, it should be a joy to serve the Lord. What, what else would you do? You were a slave to, to Satan and to sin. Uh, and, and only Jesus could set you free. No other man, no other philosophy, no other religion. And Jesus came and says, I'll become a man like you and I'll die in your place and I'll set you free. Who wouldn't want to follow an individual like that? What, what else are you going to do with your life? He's the one that has a plan and a purpose for it. And so we want to be that kind of servant to the Lord. This word signified is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the book of the Revelation. It can be understood as signified, meaning through signs through signs or symbols. Now, I've heard people say over the years that the revelation cannot really be understood because it is full of signs. Stop and think for a moment. Do we use signs to be confusing or do we use signs to make things clear? When you see a sign with a blue square overlaid in white with a stylized image of a person in a wheelchair, what do you think? Do you think it means free rides ahead? 
Meals on Wheels park here? No. You understand that it's a disabled parking lot or a, a spot or a disabled uh, restroom or, or something like that. Uh, it, it clearly communicates something you wouldn't be able to read in Chinese characters if you were in the Beijing airport. Uh, and so we use signage to be clear. They reveal rather than conceal. Signs and symbols are better than language and that they are universal and therefore they're not subject to individual interpretation. Let's say you don't have a handicap sticker and you pull into the handicap stall at your local store and you come out and there's a policeman giving you a ticket, $250 minimum fine. And you come out and say, what's this all about? And he says, You're, can you produce a handicap sticker or some kind of paperwork? No. Well, then you're going to get a fine. He goes, well, I thought this was allegorical. When I see that symbol, I think of the bruised and battered heart that I have from living in a terrible world. I see people running me over in their wheelchair and inviting me to park here. Yeah, here's your ticket. It was 250, now it's 500. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing unclear about that. The police officer or the sheriff doesn't say, you know, you're right. I'm always confused about that as well. It's just something that just doesn't register with me. And those signs on the freeway that have numbers on them. 65? Is that a recommendation for older people to drive in that lane? Or, you know, what does that mean? So you understand what I mean? Everybody's, oh, the revelation's full of signs. Thank goodness it's full of signs so that it can communicate clearly God's truth about the end times. Biblical symbols are consistent throughout the Bible. The signs and the symbols in the Revelation will be defined for us in the book, or we can easily find them defined by their use elsewhere in the Bible. If a sign means something in the Old Testament, it means the same thing in the New Testament. So yes, there are some extremely weird images in the Revelation, but we will always find their explanations. One commentator even noted, the book of Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament, containing more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament. I've heard as many as 800. And 278 of the 404 verses in the Revelation, 70% of it makes some reference to the Old Testament. A first century Jew would immediately understand without need of any explanation all of the signs that we find fantastic because it was part of their world. I mean, we're... 21st century Gentiles who don't even know the Old Testament that well. If you were a Jew, you would know exactly what was going on in this book. Sometimes Jesus conveyed information himself to John. Sometimes it was through an elder. Sometimes a voice from heaven told John what to say and do. Mostly Jesus communicated the revelation through an angel. And angels will be prominent in this book as messengers. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things he saw. John knew that what he was writing was inspired scripture. He says he faithfully recorded the testimony of Jesus, which is the things Jesus said to him through the angel. And he also saw the things that he wrote about. The revelation is the word of God. It is testified to by Jesus it is delivered by an angel. It is given in universal sign language, visually witnessed by John, and recorded by inspiration. Wow, that's ironclad stuff. That's, that's at least saying, don't think you're going to be confused because I've gone to great lengths to unveil myself.
Verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. I am being blessed right before your very eyes today. I am he who reads the words of this prophecy to you. You are being blessed right before my very eyes. Today you are those who hear and uh, the word of this prophecy. Uh, and so that's, it's wonderful. Now you're supposed to hear and heed. I just have to say it. No, I'm just, just kidding. That's bad exegesis, by the way. And it's a bad joke. It's just bad all around, right? By the way, this is the first of seven uh, blessings, or we would call them Beatitudes in the book. We'll see that as we go through. And it's the first of uh, many different sets of sevens. Seven is uh, an important number in this book. We'll talk more about that. We're not told what the blessing is. Always leave it up to Jesus to determine how to best bless you. But yes, a blessing is promised, and that is exciting. Sometimes we need to adjust our prayer life to say, Lord, do what you want. Please don't let me get in the way. I'm always reminded, somebody was talking about the other day of uh, Hezekiah. Uh, in the Old Testament, God sent the prophet to him, uh, said, hey, you're going to die. Hezekiah cried and wept and cried and cried out. So God sent the prophet back and says, all right, tell me he has 15 more years. Terrible time. He, he did awful things during those 15 years. He allowed the treasury to be spied out by the Babylonians, and he had a kid that he regretted. Uh, who turned out to be a terrible king. So just leave it up to the Lord and say, Lord, I want your will done in my life uh, and uh, you can't go wrong. We need to read, we need to hear the revelation more, not less. I'm not suggesting it is more important than any other scripture. I am suggesting too many are ignoring it and that's not good. You should have regular teaching through the book of the revelation, especially now when so many things are coming together out in the world. And as I've told you for years, uh, prophecy makes up about 30% of the Bible anyway. And so just by matter of course, going through the Bible, you should be talking about prophecy a lot. Not every Sunday, 30% of your message should be prophetic, but overall, you should be talking about the prophecy 30% of the time, and especially future prophecy. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, we just need to break the mythology that it can't be understood. I'm not saying we understand it perfectly. Don't ever get me wrong. I mean, there's a lot of room for different interpretations of certain things. Uh, but uh, to say that we shouldn't study it at all because it's a sign book or to study it uh, in some personal individual interpretation is just not good. He who reads, he who hears refers to the first audience for the revelation, and that is the seven churches of Asia in chapters two and three. If you look at them in order on a map, they form a circuit or a route from one city to the next. And so this entire book was read to and heard by all of them, uh, and it's to be read to and heard by all of the church for all of the church age. It's for every church everywhere. Uh, one commentator pointed out that writing materials were expensive, and so a church would be fortunate to have one copy of one of these letters uh, that could be read to the congregation. And so think of, uh, just for a minute, think of the excitement knowing that there was a letter waiting for you from the Apostle John uh, at your church that morning. I mean, what a, you know, I guess, you know, obviously you should be excited to come to church all the time, but John, have you heard the letter from John? arrived. And then you'd hear it, 
uh, I assume they read through the book. It doesn't really, actually, it doesn't take that long to read through the entire book of the Revelation. And then they'd want it read again, wouldn't you? I mean, you could spend all day just reading and rereading this book, especially if you knew that once it was gone, it was gone. It was going to the next city and you wouldn't hear it again. Uh, and, and so just uh, the palpable excitement. And I'm not saying that we can generate that or need to phony it up, you know, and stuff. But sometimes we need to think about how precious it is that we have the word of God. And, and uh, you know, get up on a Sunday and say, man, I, I have got to get where Christians are so I can hear what the Lord wants me to hear and, and live a better life for Jesus because I love him. The original recipients were suffering extreme persecution from the Roman emperor Domitian. It was going to go from bad to worse to martyrdom. The believers would find great hope in the knowledge that the kingdom of the Lord was on its way. You're to keep the things that are in this. Prophecy is practical. We don't study it because we're curious about the future. When we get to the letters to the seven churches, we'll see much in the way of practical advice and obedience. It's super practical uh, in terms of what a church is and needs to be doing and those kinds of things. And so it's not just curiosity. And I say that because a lot of times people say, oh, you know, the future is set. We need to concentrate on the here and now, the church's mission here and now. Well, part of the church's mission here and now is to unveil Jesus Christ in his second coming. And, and so that's what we're doing. It's become popular to categorize this book as apocalyptic literature. I don't know if anybody has heard that before. It's being written about. You hear about this. That sounds right at first because it calls itself the apocalypse. So if the apocalypse is an apocalyptic, what is? Well, let me tell you, apocalyptic literature, I don't understand it totally, but it is a category of writing, what scholars call a genre like prose and poetry are categories of writing. And so if you had the Revelation and you read it, you'd say, well, it's not a poem. That's not the genre. And it's not, uh, you know, uh, this or that. Uh, maybe it's apocalyptic. But one of the many reasons the Revelation is not in the category of apocalyptic literature is that the first three chapters are literal. And apocalyptic literature doesn't have literal chapters. Another reason is that apocalyptic literature doesn't promise you a blessing from heaven for reading it. It recognizes that it isn't the word of God. Another reason is that apocalyptic literature is pseudonymous. Huh. I have the pronunciation of that here, otherwise I'd be in trouble. That big word means written under a false name. Somebody else wrote it than the person they say wrote it. That's definitely not the case here, but there is a better argument. The Revelation is not apocalyptic literature because it calls itself a prophecy. It is in the category of prophecy. The proper approach to the Revelation is to assume a literal interpretation of symbols unless a particular factor in the text indicates it should be interpreted figuratively. There are figures, figures of speech, and, and it'll use language like it's like this or it's similar to this, but other times it's just to be taken literally. If you've ever heard or read a teaching by someone who treats the revelation as apocalyptic, you noted that they ignore the signs as they are defined in the book in favor of their own allegories. Let me give you an example. 
In chapter 7, we're going to read, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Then the chapter continues by going tribe by tribe, saying that 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel were sealed. They were set aside for a special ministry that's going to be talked about. So reading that, who do you think they are? Well, if you're Jehovah's Witness, you believe that exactly 144,000 Christians from Pentecost until the present day will be resurrected to heaven as immortal spirit beings to spend eternity with God. If you're a Mormon, you believe that the sealing of the 144,000 relates to the high priests. Uh, but it's not only the cults that contribute to confusion. Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, says, the 144,000 and the great multitude are not two different people, but two different ways of describing the same bride. From one advantage point, the purified bride is numbered. From another, she is innumerable, a great multitude no one can count. And so he's saying, I guess, that the 144,000 is just a general number that describes the church uh, in its multitude. Kevin DeYoung, writing for the Gospel Coalition, says blatantly, the 144,000 are not an ethnic Jewish remnant. They represent the entire community of the redeemed. And so he's saying they're all the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament, not 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. The problem is there is nothing anywhere in the Bible, nowhere, that suggests 144,000 is a figurative number or that these aren't exactly the Jews who John says they are. And to say that it is, is based on your own feeling or philosophy or theology that they can't be. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has decided that there is no purpose for Israel in the last days, and so this number must refer to all of the redeemed in some sense. But there's no reference of the 144,000 in the Old Testament. This is a New Testament mystery being revealed. And when we get to that chapter, it's one of those redundant chapters. You think, okay, I get it. 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Ephraim. You know, it goes on and on and on so that you can't possibly make a mistake. Oh, yeah, you can by taking it as a figure. Here's another reason we are futurists who read the prophecy literally. Whenever someone in the Bible interpreted prophecy, he did so literally. Daniel, for instance, was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. He came to the place where Jeremiah indicated that the captivity of the Jews in Babylon would last 70 years. Daniel believed it to be literal. He realized that the time was almost done, and he set himself to being ready to return to Jerusalem. Time is near, the Bible says here. Time means a certain period of time. We might call it an age. The certain period of time is the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. The kingdom age was the constant expectation of the Jews. We see it among Jesus' disciples. Before his crucifixion, we read in Mark 10, 37, that James and John said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. They expected the Lord to establish the kingdom, and they were vying for positions on the cabinet. As Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's all the Jews thought about, especially when they were in captivity. They were wanting their Messiah to return and establish the kingdom that was promised all over the Old Testament. How is it near? Well, Jesus is in heaven and he's poised to return. He's coming. We think it delayed, but it is near. 
When the Apostle Peter talked about the end times, he reminded us that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now that's a scripture that is figurative because he says one day is like a thousand years. He doesn't say for God a thousand years is one day. It's not a mathematical formula. He's just saying that if you're eternal, a thousand years, 5,000 years, 10,000 years is nothing. You and I live to maybe 70, and so the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet seems like an eternity. Uh, as far as God's concerned, he's right on track. You likely received many picture cards this Christmas. It's always interesting to see how folks are changing and aging, especially if you haven't seen them for a while. Every now and then, you might not even recognize somebody in a card. You ever done that? You say, honey, who is this? Or you think, oh, I'm going to hold the name. Guess who this is? Always in a good sense, of course. The last time his disciples saw Jesus, he was in his glorified body ascending into heaven. Right out of the gate in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 1 here, we're going to see him very, very differently portrayed. Throughout this book, we're going to see not a different Jesus. That's silly. We're going to see Jesus in different ways than we have thought about him for a while. And I'm hoping that we will see him in those ways and in maybe ways we've never thought of before. The Lord wants to reveal, not conceal himself. He's going to do it through many names and titles, many events. Uh, and one of the things we want to say probably not every week, but we want you to remember, we call this series The Grace of Wrath. Jesus is going to pour out God's wrath upon a Christ-rejecting earth for seven years, especially the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. But it is an act of God's grace in that he is still seeking men to believe in him and be saved from eternal damnation. And so uh, what a wonderful picture of our Lord. Here's a piece of travel advice as we journey toward heaven. It's from the book of Hebrews. We'll close with this. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray.